Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. We're going to turn to um, the end of, we finished the Sermon on the Mount last week. We're going to turn at the end back to a verse that I really believe is a crucial section of the Sermon on the Mount, especially for our day. And so I want to emphasize it again and sort of call it out for your attention. That, that portion is found in the last chapter. It's one that we looked at just a few weeks ago. And uh, I want to turn back because it hits on something that's a, a, a theme throughout Scripture that that I really believe is a theme that we have lost sight of and uh, have perverted. And so our passage is Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20. And it's Jesus speaking about fruitfulness. Will you stand with me as we look at this together? And it's short again, so would you read it with me as we, as we look together at it? Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and it's come to us from your son. He spoke it. The Holy Spirit inspired it to be written. And now it needs to be applied in our lives and in our nation, Father. And I pray that you will apply it. You'll give me the words to speak on it with reverence and fear of you and with with a power that drives it home, and that we will together heed what Jesus has said here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You notice that Jesus says you need to judge those who are your prophets. You need to, pr- to judge those who come to you as prophets of God, but who are in fact ravenous wolves. Jesus assumes that there will be such men and women in the, in the course of the lives of those he's speaking to. And he wants them to be aware of this and he wants them to know how to judge. And this passage is a statement by Jesus about how we are to judge those who are false. Which means this is a test for leaders. We need to look at leaders and apply this test. And it's one of the great failings of, of the church today that leadership is not tested that there is no requirement that we look at it and say, well, it sounds good, and, and fail to apply this test, which Jesus has said. Be aware that there will be false prophets. This, this inability or refusal to test is not something that is, takes place only with leaders. The, no doubt the reason that we fail to do this and fail to ask uh, certain things of our leaders and to examine their lives in accord with what Jesus says here is that we don't want to do it to ourselves. And so it's not just true that we fail to, to question leadership and to ask for fruit from them. 
But the reality is we fail to do this across the board. We don't do it with our leaders because we don't want them doing it with us and we don't want to have to do it with ourselves. And so it's a mutual compact. It's a, a, an agreement where we went Manchester, you know, Manchester. I won't ask you. You don't ask me. We're all going to look on the surface and we're going to be very happy because on the surface things look good. That's the age we live in. That's the church that we live in as an American church. And this is something that Jesus has said cannot go on if there's going to be hell. If you're going to grow in the Lord, if you're going to be what God wants you to be, you cannot just accept that a leader who looks good is therefore good. Or even a leader who says good things is therefore good. But you're to apply this test. You're going to ask, is there good fruit? Now, let me say that throughout history, at those times that this test is applied, the church flourishes, the nations are changed, God is glorified. We can, we can look back through history and identify certain times when everyone was saying, is that true? Is, is there good fruit? This is what Martin Luther did. And before him, John Huss and others. You know, it wasn't just Martin Luther. There's a whole strain of people who were saying, you know, I'm looking at the Pope and I'm looking at the fruit of this and I don't like it. It doesn't seem to be good. And, and once that question gets asked, suddenly we're driven back to the Word of God and we start to say, well, what does the Word of God say? What is good fruit? And changes happen at the time of Luther, at the time of the Reformation, Huss, one of the first reformers, it, it changed the world. Life came as a result of it. We could, I, I could go throughout history. I could talk about Augustine and his, his criticisms of the Constantinian church and his, his, the city of God, the book he wrote in response to the sacking of Rome saying, look, yeah, the reason this happened is that we haven't been following God. We haven't been putting God first. We could turn to the, the Great Awakening in England and America, a time when a number of preachers started saying, hey, you know what? I don't think the fruit that we're supposed to have is as plentiful and bounteous as it should be. They were speaking as part of an established church, the Anglican Church, the Episcopalian Church in England. And they were saying, you know, we don't, and they were being gentle about it, but eventually the church responded in anger to them, and they said, you know what? We think this is a real issue. It's a big issue, and it led to a split. They weren't allowed to preach in the churches anymore. They had to preach out of doors. But what God brought out of that was the revitalization of the entire, well, Western Hemisphere almost. In America and Great Britain, there was a return to God because people started saying, where's the fruit? What's the fruit? At the end of Malachi, I was reading this this morning, and it struck me that God is speaking about the people and how they have turned from him in a variety of ways. And, uh, and then it says that those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written. So everyone came together and said, you know, what? we're going to live by God again. It's the kind of thing that happens when we start saying there's no good fruit. They said, we're going to live by God and we're going to sign a covenant together that we're going to live for God. And, and God saw it. And he was pleased with it. And he said, they will be mine. On the day that I prepare my own possession, I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. And then he says, so because they've done this and because he's going to be kind to the end, what will the result be? So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. When God is pleased with people... When God is honored in his, the lives of his flock, there is, he gives a spirit that says, you know what, 
that's wrong, this is right. He gives the spirit to judge, to discriminate, to understand false shepherds. So I want to turn now to our passage and speak to you about it. What is the criteria? Actually, it's criteria, it's singular. What is the criterion that God gives that is the measure of whether a prophet is false? Now, let me say, it's not just for the, the prophets, it's for all of us. This is a criterion that applies to all our lives, and it's a wide one. It's, it may be one criterion, but it encompasses all of life. Well, the, the thing that God says we should look for is fruit. Fruit. God wants us to be fruitful. God says, if you're going to trust a guy, if you're going to put your faith in a shepherd, make sure that shepherd is fruitful. Make sure that there is fruit coming from that life. Now, fruitfulness is a theme that jumps from the pages of Scripture once you're attuned to it. If you're not attuned to it, you'll just glide right over the passages which talk about fruitfulness. But once you start looking at fruitfulness and God's desire for fruitfulness, it just leaps from every page of Scripture. It is the criteria of God for, by which he judges us at the end of time. Were you fruitful? It's what he tells us that we should look for in our leaders. It's what he gave in the Garden of Eden. He gave fruit. And when man turned against God in sin, what did God do? Well, he said uh, two things. You're going to die, and death is the opposite of fruitfulness, right? But he didn't remove fruitfulness all told. He said that now fruit is going to be hard. It's going to be difficult for you to be able to to produce fruit. If you're a gardener, it's going to be through toil that you'll bring things out because there's going to be weeds and the earth is going to resist you. If you are a, uh, a mother or a wife, you're going to bear children. Your fruitfulness is going to be, it's going to be difficult. There's going to be pain. And so what God does when, when man sins is to blight fruitfulness. He doesn't remove it. It does end in death. But he says, along the way, I'm going to let you continue to bear fruit. But now, instead of it being just this beautiful garden where everything is perfect and where the fruit just naturally flows, there will be weeds and there will be labor. It's going to affect all parts of creation. Fruitfulness is required after the fall, but it comes at a price. And God continues to require it. And the, in creation, the, the, the fish of the sea are told to be fruitful and multiply. And then man is told to be fruitful and multiply. And then the flood comes, and man is told to be fruitful and multiply. And the, the animals are told to be fruitful and multiply separately before the flood. God is continuing to say, be fruitful and multiply. It's said of Ishmael. God says to Abraham, Ishmael is going to be fruitful and will be multiplied. God says to Jacob, uh, be fruitful and multiply, and Jacob is told by his father Isaac as well, be fruitful and multiply. And we know that Jacob has 12 sons, all of whom become children of God and are included in the covenant. And so it's a blessing to Jacob, even as it's a command. In the New Testament, Jesus demands fruitfulness. And John the Baptist demanded fruitfulness, the predecessor to Jesus, because when the scribes and the Pharisees came out to hear John, he said to them, hey, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. He demanded fruit from them. God gives us the Holy Spirit so that we might produce the fruit of the Spirit. He commands the disciples to go out into all the earth and bear uh, fruit to produce disciples. It's a form of fruitfulness. 
At the end of the Bible, we have a picture of the new heaven and the new earth, and the streets of the heavenly city are lined with trees that we're told bear fruit in and out of season, and the fruit of those trees are for the healings, the healing of the nations. So we could go on and on in this vein, speaking about God's desire for fruitfulness, God's demand for fruitfulness, the, the ways that we can produce fruit, but it, I just want to say it's a command. It's an expectation of God for me and for you, for everyone. Church is to be fruitful. You're to be fruitful. Corporately together, we're to be fruitful. Separately apart, we're to be fruitful. God expects fruit. Now, you may not have thought of it, but fruitfulness stems from the very nature of God. What is fruitfulness? Well, fruitfulness, I wonder what I'm doing here. <laughs> fruitfulness is generational. Fruitfulness is producing a generation and God is eternally generating a son he is a father and the father himself is fruitful and so when God tells us to be fruitful he's telling us to do what is essential to his own character to be fruitful to bear a son to generate a son and out of the father and the son there's further fruitfulness because from them proceed the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is given to us so that we might bear fruit right you see there's this dynamic of fruitfulness that God blesses it God encourages us in it, God gives us himself that we will be fruitful. So making judgments based on fruit is essential to Christian growth, individually and corporately. And when the church declines, when the church starts to fall apart, when it diminishes, it's because it's failing to do. I'm hot anyway, maybe this is rubbing against it. It's because the church is failing to do what Jesus requires it to do. You got this on? Jonathan. It's because the church is failing to do what Jesus requires it to. It declines because it stops producing fruit. It's not requiring good fruit in its leaders. It's not discerning bad fruit. It's saying fruit, 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 and gobbling whatever's put before it. I'm reminded of the, the story in, the, in, in First Kings, 2 Kings, 2 Kings, of the prophets in the day of Elisha. The school of the prophets, the group of men who came together and prophesied, learned about it, did it together. And Elisha comes to them, and they've been out working, and so they prepare a meal at the end of the day. One of the prophets has gone out to get food for the, for the communal meal. He comes across a wild vine, and it's putting out gourds. And so he grabs a gourd, thinking it's some kind of squash, not knowing what it is. He brings it back. He tosses it into the community pot, but it's deadly. And when the prophets eat it, they realize... They're going to die because it's a poison. And they cry out to Elisha, and Elisha heals them. He makes the fruit to, to be good. But bad fruit is being eaten everywhere. And the discernment that's required to understand bad fruit is vital. This, this story about Elisha and the, the death in the pot, the, the poisonous gourd, is a parable of the church in the Old Testament and the New when we accept what is bad fruit, what is poisonous, when we accept death as fruit, when we taste death, when we see death coming, when we're in the midst of what to any inquiring mind is decay and death, then we need to do what the prophets did with Elijah and cry out to God and say, change our fruit. So the days of great works of God have always been tied to people awakening to bad fruit in their church, in their own lives, in the lives of their leaders, in the lives of the 
the culture in which they live. And they cry out to God and they tell God, look, God, we're dying. We're dying here. There's bad fruit. And he responds with healing. It happened with John the Baptist prior to Jesus calling the scribes and Pharisees. It happened with Jesus, who condemns the false fruit of the Pharisees mercilessly here in this early sermon and throughout his teaching. It happened with the prophets in the Old Testament, each of whom was called by God to go and say to the people that their fruit was bad. There was death in their pot. They didn't know it. They weren't recognizing or heeding it, but they needed to turn to God if they were to survive. And it happens in our church today. Read City of God by Augustine, read about the Reformation, read about the Great Awakening, read about any great work of God, and you'll find that it began in people saying, bad fruit, whoa, bad fruit, in their lives, in the lives of others, and eventually God responds when fruit is sought, when bad fruit is turned from, God responds by giving good fruit. Discerning bad fruit then is essential to healing and healing to spiritual life, but there's a difficulty because there are many, many forms of fruitfulness. Every area of life, every vocation, every job, every calling, every person in their own individual lives and all of us corporately have ways that we are required to be fruitful. How then can we judge? We say there's good fruit here, there's good fruit here, you know, I don't see a scandal, I don't see, I see a nice person, but there's this here. How do we judge? Life depends on it, but how do we judge? When Jesus tells parables about fruitfulness, like the parable of the talents with the king who goes and gives his servants sums of gold, talents, that's a weight of gold, to use for him in his absence, he doesn't say, and I think it's on purpose, he doesn't say what he's looking for. He doesn't tell them, this is how you're to produce fruit. He doesn't say, I'm looking for this fruit or that fruit or the other fruit. He just says, go and make fruit from it. Be fruitful with it. And when they come back, they've achieved a variety of things. The only one, that the, the king in that parable that Jesus tells, the only one who he condemns is the one who hides the gold in the ground and refuses to try to invest. The others bring a variety of returns, and the king seems satisfied equally with each. So I want to offer to you three ways to judge fruitfulness. Three ways you need to apply to yourself. I need to apply to myself three ways that you need to apply to your leaders and you need to apply to your church. I'm not just talking about the leaders in this church, but I am talking about them, but I'm also talking about the leaders in the national church. These are tests for your life, your calling, your work, your church, and the church. There is a first truth about fruitfulness, and it shouldn't need to be said, but it does, and that is that wicked deeds are not good fruit. <laughs> Wicked deeds are not good fruit. Now you think, well, duh, yeah, uh, okay. Uh, wicked deeds aren't good fruit. But David, we're all sinners, you know? And uh, we're all going to commit sin. And does that mean that none of us is producing good fruit? Does this mean that what Jesus commands here is actually impossible and that we should give up trying and put it aside and just turn to him and rely on grace? Is that what it means? Well, what it means actually, is that we need to discern. We need to look at patterns. We need to discern between levels of sinfulness. We need to, to understand what is good fruit and really good fruit and bad fruit and really bad fruit. Jesus makes it clear that those who teach are more accountable and will be punished more seriously 
Jesus speaks of some being punished with few stripes and some with many. It's very clear that there's a distinction between the gravity and the level of sin. And people want to deny this, but it's just obvious in the Bible. You can't deny it. It's true. Certain sins meet with certain judgments. Others God overlooks, but he didn't overlook the murder of children. He overlooked their divorcing each other and then said, now I'm done overlooking this. So there's a, a level of gravity to sin. And we need to discern it. Now, if you ask someone, and I, you've done this and I've done this often, if you ask someone, if someone they know or they are talking to you about or a member of their family or friend is a Christian, has been, in other words, saved by Jesus from their life of sin, which is what it means to be a Christian. It means to have been converted to Jesus and to have departed from a former way of life by the power of God. If you ask them this, very often, the response you'll get will be one that goes, well, they are this, and they do that, and the, those things are negative, often tied to sin. They struggle with this. They, they are this, that, and, and that, but then they say, but you know, they go to church, and I know that they were baptized, or I know that they prayed the sinner's prayer if it's a young person, and so, yes, they're a Christian. And you go, wow, that's, that's very interesting. The, the fruit apparently doesn't matter. All that matters is uh, some kind of mental act. And fruit doesn't matter. Yes, he's a Christian. He goes to church. He professes to be a Christian. He prayed once to receive Jesus. And uh, wow, if this is the measure of good fruit, what a terribly low view of salvation is possessed by the person who accepts this. That good fruit is simply being what you are with a little sheen or a patina of, of good over the darkness. You know? Yeah, I've, I've got an outside that's been guilted. I've had a, a thin layer of gold. I'm still a mess on inside, but now I shine because... God in salvation has put a little layer of gold, like the capital dome, little layer of gold all over me, and so now I'm gold. No, that's not it. The new birth is a new person, a new creation. It is being born again. The fruit of salvation cannot be adultery. Can't be. Now, am I saying that no one saved ever commits adultery? Well, I'll come to that. But it can't be. We can't say that this is good fruit when there's adultery, when there's divorce, when there's homosexuality, when there's gossip, when there's theft, when there's addiction. And I know <laughs> the response to this is, well, David, Christians sin too. And as I said, yes, you're right. Christians do sin as well in very serious ways at times. King David is proof of this in his murder and adultery. But if the Christian sins and is truly a man or a woman of God, they may be like David in that sin that they committed, but they must also be like David in the way they respond to that sin. David, who, who lies down in public for a week in not eating in dust and ashes, praying and asking God forgiveness, God for forgiveness. Like David, who wrote a psalm 
a poem based on his wickedness and then dedicated it to be sung week after week in the temple so that we know it and actually sing it today. Yes, great Christians can sin, but they will repent like David. They will pray for God not to take his Holy Spirit away like David did. They will triumph over temptation like David. They will be honest about what they've done. They will shout it before the world to the glory and praise of God. They will not hide it. So Jesus expects us to understand bad fruit. And bad fruit means a bad tree. Good fruit means a, bit, a good tree. You see a person with a notable scandalous sin associated with him or her, and you have your answer. You have the answer you need. You do. It's there. It's written on them by, their, by the fruit that they're bearing. It doesn't matter if he's a pastor of a church who divorced his wife and who's led many people to the Lord. Unless there is the kind of repentance that I've just described as David going through, that is bad fruit. That is a bad shepherd. And you should be no more willing to accept it in your pastor than you would in your son or your daughter. You wouldn't accept the kind of repentance that you see in many pastors as repentance if your child came to you having repented in that way from stealing from your wallet or something of that nature. Jesus expects us to understand. It doesn't matter if it's a famous pastor. It doesn't matter if it's a well-known Christian singer. Bad fruit, bad fruit is a bad tree. Good fruit comes through confession and repentance. So if I see a man fall, commit adultery, and the next year he's back preaching and resuming his public ministry, proclaiming himself repentant and forgiven and talking about how marvelous the grace of God is, well, I go, well, you don't get to talk about the grace of God because you haven't tasted it yet because the grace of God gives you humility because the grace of God gives you power over this kind of thing because the grace of God does not seek to be right back in the pulpit but the grace of God understands the gravity of sin and the nature of the cost to Jesus that that sin entails. So don't talk to me about grace when you sinned and you want to be right back in your pulpit. Don't talk to me about it. It's not good fruit. And this is the church we live in. How many pastors have done this just in the last three years? And how many churches have said, come on back, come on back? The prophet warns, the Old Testament prophet warns the people that if they take something holy in their hands and touch what is common with, he says, God speaking through the prophet says, is the common thing made holy by contact with what is holy? Is the, the unclean thing made, made clean by contact with what is holy? The answer, if you know the prophet, if you know this, is no. Touching something unclean with something clean does not make the unclean holy. But then God says, but if you take what is clean and you touch what is filthy, what is unclean with it, is it rendered unclean? And God says through the prophet, yes. Yes. So the unclean is not made righteous by contact with what is holy, but what is holy is rendered impure by contact with unrighteousness. Sin is like rolling in dirt. Scandalous public sin is a person willingly rolling in public in a pile of manure and then standing up and saying, don't I smell good by the grace of God. 
You can't just say, but okay, they did that. This part of their life is good. Look how many people go to that church. It doesn't matter. Look, they're, they're having salvation every weekend. The tree, the Bible says, is bad. You may not have the perspective on that ministry that time will give. You may not have perspective on that life. But I guarantee you, you watch it and you watch its fruit and you will learn that it really was bad. Trust God, judge in accord with his word. Don't go by how you feel. It's a travesty of Christ's command in these verses to call bad fruit, sinful fruit, good. We hesitate at this because we're afraid of what it might indicate about us. But instead of hesitating to apply this criterion, let's apply it and allow it to cause us to question ourselves, to say, what am I doing? How am I living? Rather than do the far greater wickedness of describing the new birth, the new salvation in Christ as weak and incapable of causing us to be what Paul refers to in Ephesians when he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived, once lived, not now, in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Look, the life of your leaders needs to represent this, and yours as well. It needs to have a before and an after, and there needs to be a marked difference. This is what Jesus requires. There's a second truth about discerning fruitfulness, and that's this. And, and uh, you know, it's always a danger in speaking to people to have someone take offense that you didn't mean to. Sometimes that's God's will. You didn't know it. Sometimes it's because you phrase things inelegantly. And uh, last week I came home from church, and my kids sat around the dinner table at Father's Day and let me have it. And they said, oh, Dad. We hate it when you do cringeworthy things in the pulpit. Uh, what? Yeah? What did I do? <laughs> well, usually I can look out there, it's probably because they're that, that far that direction now, and I, I can see them going, Ugh, you know? I didn't see it this time. They said, you said that it was great to be with the, the committed ones on Sunday morning, which implies that everyone who's watching is not committed. And I went, well, I didn't quite mean it that way. They said, well, that's what you said. <laughs> so, you know, what I was thinking was the company of the committed, a book that I read, great book. And uh, I just used that term. I said, oh, the company of the committed, those who are here. I'm not saying if you're watching this from home and you have issues in any way that you're not committed, but it is a joy looking out on those who are here, you know? And then, so I hope I haven't just done it again. <laughs> And as, as I speak about fruitfulness in this second realm, listen to what I'm saying. Don't, don't take me to be going beyond it. To uh, There are some important qualifiers in this, in this portion of my sermon. But it is true, okay, the second thing we need to understand as we're going to discern fruitfulness, we're going to discern whether people are worth following and whether our lives are what they should be by looking at fruitfulness there is a truth that's found in scripture that is that wherever God has given us the calling and the ability to be fruitful, God requires fruit. 
He doesn't say how much. He doesn't say of, in every area what type. But it's got to be good and it's got to be fruit. And the only one in those, those parables about the talents that Jesus told, the only one who gets rejected is the one who doesn't try and produce fruit. All right? So where there is the capacity to produce fruit in terms of what Jesus is saying in these verses, where there is a calling and a capacity to produce fruit and there is no fruit, you can read no fruit as bad fruit. No fruit is bad fruit. Now, you heard the qualifications. Where there is the ability, the capacity, the power, and the calling, and there's no fruit, then no fruit is bad fruit. I'm not bearing bad fruit because I do a lousy video, right? That's not my calling. You're happy to see a very crude video put together by the pastor. But if Nick did it like that, you'd go, Nick, have you lost your touch, right? Because he has the abilities, he has the capacity, he has the calling, right? This is true in every realm. It's true of fatherhood. It's true of motherhood. It's true in work, at your business. It's true in your church, in your family, in your marriage. Every aspect, every area is a, an area or an aspect of potential fruitfulness. So let me begin by speaking the big picture before narrowing it to you and me individually. You understand, don't you, that a necessary consequence of the teaching that Jesus gives in these verses, when he says, judge by the fruit, grapes aren't gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are they, so every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. You understand, when you read this, therefore, that a church which professes to know Jesus and to worship him, where there are no repentant people being baptized. No people coming to know the Lord. No conversions. What does that say? It says they were deprived of the Holy Spirit. You know, somehow that church got going and God didn't bless it with his son's power. You know, the blood of Jesus didn't quite, you know, is there a reason for it? Did God not give them his Holy Spirit to bear fruit? Did Jesus not die for them and tell them to go and make disciples? Do they not have the calling? Am I making sense here? A church which does not bear fruit, which does not have baptisms of repentant sinners, is a dead church. It's unfruitful. And it should not be. It's a sign that that's a church. Now, I'm not saying that every baptism is good fruit. I've done enough baptisms to know the converse is not true either. But where there is no fruit, there is no life. It's only through unfaithfulness and wickedness that a church becomes unfruitful. Of course, it takes time for fruit to grow, to germinate, to come to life. And Jesus tells a parable of the owner of a vineyard who goes out with his, his tree tender, his gardener, and looks through his vineyard and comes across a tree that's not producing fruit. The owner says to the gardener, cut it down and burn it. The gardener says to the owner, says, please be patient. Give me a year to dig around it and to fertilize it. And then if having been cultivated in another year, next year it produces no fruit, then yes, it's a bad tree and we'll cut it down and burn it. Jesus, we understand, is the gardener 
tending you with his love, filling you with his spirit, cultivating you so that you'll bear fruit. And if you're unfruitful, it may be that it's a period of growth and that there's fruit coming. He's cultivating you to bear fruit and he's asking his father to stay his judgment, to remain patient. And if you are in him, your days will become more fruitful. And you will be producing fruit even now, the fruit of repentance before the fruit of eternal life in others. Your repentance must precede others coming to know Jesus, and that's fruit. John the Baptist says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Fruit of repentance is good fruit. So it's not that you have to be leading someone to the Lord, but you must be doing the things that will lead you to be fruitful. Jesus doesn't spell out exactly what he expects, exactly what fruit you're going to produce. It's going to be different as your gifts are different. He doesn't say what the fruit is, and I think that's intentional. He's given us differing calls, differing gifts. The one overriding truth you and I must accept is that to be given the capacity for fruitfulness and not to produce fruit is wicked. No fruit is bad fruit. And this is true in every vocation, every area of calling in life, every area where God has given you ability and authority. The sanitation worker is not expected to be fruitful in the same way as the village administrator. That's not his calling, nor vice versa. But in each calling and with each gift of ability and authority comes an expectation of fruit from God. If you marry and you reject the fruitfulness of marriage, if you reject fruitfulness in this area, having the capacity to bear children, and no specific circumstances in life which militate against children, you just would rather not, or you feel that the world is going down and can't support the weight of further humanity, or you fear raising children, what it would do to you, what they will turn out like, what the future may hold for them in this dark world, Whatever reason you use, you're unfruitful. In an area where you've taken up a vocation, where God has given a calling. And if the capacity to fulfill it is there, to refuse it is to deny God his fruit. This is even more true of churches. Couples may be infertile. There may be physical obstacles or threats that are entailed by pregnancy, but this is never true of the new birth. The new birth is a miracle of God, and the only impediment that can exist to it taking place is our refusal to operate by faith. All of us have the gift of God of going out and being salt and light, of being a city on a hill, of spreading the word of God. The new birth is a miracle. And it doesn't matter that God gives differing gifts. Some in the church are called to be evangelists. Others, like Dorcas, do good deeds. In the end, all these gifts work together to produce great fruit. They lead people to the Lord. They cause people to grow in the Lord. They do things. If the church is not growing and people are not coming to the Lord, it's not a dormant church. It's not going through a season. Maybe a new church, yes, maybe, but... Over a matter of years, it's dead. We have to recognize it. it's dead. This is true of every vocation. No matter what you're called to do, no matter where you serve, no matter what your place is in life, your age, your sex, your income, your intelligence level, your education, your job, 
It's never the case that you're allowed by God to relax and stop producing fruit for him. This is a danger that many of us who are older face. We think we've reached a certain level of assets, we've worked a certain number of years, and we say, okay, now it's time for me. Polycarp, the early church father, urged by the commander at age 86 to kiss the idol and not go to his death as a Christian, said, 80 and six years have I served Jesus. He has never done me any injury. How then can I now blaspheme my king and my savior? Bearing fruit in old age, like Caleb in the Old Testament, who said, I know I'm old. Let me go against the hardest target. This should be the attitude of those of us who are older. Now, I want to turn to um, a final point, perhaps the most important consideration in our day for judging fruit. God has surrounded fruitfulness with certain things that, that all of us recognize. God gives us pain and pleasure as road signs in life. Pain comes from the things that God is warning us about. Pleasure is, is attached to the things that are, that are good. Now, we can, we can ignore the pain uh, or reject the pain that's implicit in, in obtaining pleasure, and we can pursue pleasure and, and refuse to be fruitful and, and, and to accept the pain that comes with fruitfulness as well. But in the end, pain and pleasure are a pretty reliable, a pretty reliable set of road signs to where God wants us to be, to what he wants us to do. If the flame causes pain, you pull your hand out. God has given us this sense of pain and pleasure. Have you ever considered how richly God has surrounded fruitfulness with pleasure, with sensual pleasure? Have you ever stopped to consider that every form of fruitfulness in creation is filled with the pleasure of God, the, with, with pleasures for us that are given us by God? Um, you, you may never have thought about it, but I urge you to consider this. The act of fruitfulness between man and woman is filled with pleasure. It's filled with, with all kinds of pleasure. There's the pleasure of the actual act, the sensual, physical pleasure. There's the pleasure of the relationship that entails the, the act or should, which is a beautiful thing. It's the unitive part of the marriage rather than the procreative, you know, that we come together and we're one. The act itself is pleasurable, but sex grows better with age, not because we grow more beautiful, but because the relationship at the heart of the act deepens in beauty. And so committed marital sex is always reported in every measure of pleasure in sex as far more satisfying than casual hookup sex. God has made it this way. He puts pleasure where there is good fruit. The act is pleasurable. The emotion is pleasurable. The relationship behind the act is beautiful. And the consequence of the act, the fruit of the act, is exquisitely, it's a, a parade of pleasures. The baby that comes is a gift to our eyes. We can't take our eyes off these little toddlers as they walk around. They're a gift to our ears as we listen to them coo. They're a gift to our touch. The baby is, I think, the God's supreme gift to the tactile sense, the sense of touch. To hold a baby, to feel the new skin. There's nothing like it on earth. No pleasure can surpass it. Not even the act that produces it. <laughs> nothing more. I know, some of you are saying, David, you're crazy, you're getting old there in age, but really, there's nothing like holding a newborn, nothing. 
the fresh skin, the smell of this baby's head, the smiles, the whole act that precedes the baby and everything the act leads to is so rich in pleasure because God made it that way to show us something about his desire. He loves fruitfulness and he requires fruitfulness, so he surrounds fruitfulness with pleasure. The flowers are beautiful and they're essential to the fruit. The flowers are beautiful. The rows of corn at the end of the summer, the grains, the stands of wheat, and then when they're harvested, the shocks of wheat or corn, eh, not corn, they harvest them straight up, but the shocks of wheat are the, it's just, it's, it's mesmerizing in its beauty because God has surrounded fruitfulness with beauty. God surrounds it, but since the fall, fruitfulness has also been encumbered not just by the pain of bearing fruit, but by death. By death. And Jesus reflects this when he says to his disciples, unless a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it cannot bear fruit. And so we see that this is true of our fruitfulness as well. It's beautiful, it's pleasurable, it grows better with age, but also there's death in it. You know, the grain of wheat falls to the ground, and it dies, but it produces something. And we see this in marriage. The, the bloom that's there at the wedding is not there 20 years on and five children on or 10 children or two children on. It's not there, but it's beautiful. What's there is even more beautiful than that fresh glowing bride. It's, it's, but there's death in it. And the actual bearing of children as every other form of fruitful is messy, dirty, and I've talked about all the pleasures, but I've ignored the smells of diapers, the, 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 the tactile senses that are unpleasurable of, of having your child vomit on your face, of, of smells, tastes, every, you know, there's an awful lot of negative. The diapers change, the night's spent up, and it wears you out and you die. Jesus says. <laughs> Yeah, I, I really mean it. You die. Your, your purpose in this life, once you get married, you think, wow, now I'm going to go on to fun things. I'm going to have a lot of fun. It's going to be great. And you realize almost immediately that life is no longer about you, but about the next generation. You know? And you were there to do something, and now you're getting old, and the bloom is coming off the rose, but boy, what you did is beautiful. It's beautiful. Well, I say this because we live in an age which is particularly evil because we have said we want the pleasures of fruitfulness, but we've rejected the death implicit in it. We said, I want pleasures. And so we have, we have families where people say, you know, we're going to marry, we're going to have uh, the joys of a marital relationship, but we don't want children. Sometimes they try and dress it up by saying, you know, this is a dark world. But I say to you, God has put you together because he was seeking a good seed. That's what the Bible says. He's seeking a good seed. And if you say, well, you know, this is a bad world. This is a hard life. And is it really that you are thinking about your children or is it that you're thinking about yourself? That you don't want your body to experience the ravages of, of childbirth? 
I've encountered this trend in Christian circles that I connect with Angelina Jolie of couples who say, you know, we're not going to bear children. We're not going to. We're just going to adopt. And I go, well, the Bible is very clear about our need to care for orphans. And so caring for orphans is explicitly a good thing. But that's not in, in denial of God's command also that he wants godly seed from you. And so what is it? Is it that you really don't want your body broken on the labor bench? Is it that you, I think for some of these people, it's that the woman doesn't want to be that connected with the man because there's always the possibility of divorce, you know? And so if we haven't born children together, it'll be easier if we ever part. Surely that's much of Hollywood's choice in this. We love the pleasure and we say no to the fruit and that can't be. For decades in the American church, we had revival after revival where the revivalists would come to town and there'd be this, this cathartic coming to God. Then the revival preacher would leave town and he'd say, okay, you guys take care of this now. That was never the pattern of Jesus or of Paul. It's seeking the pleasures. It's church services where it's all emotion and no challenge. We want the, it's the, it's the, the movement that's racking our nation right now. It's a religious movement. It's calling people to repent. They're getting on their knees and repenting of the misdeeds of their ancestors at times, you know? That's the kind of repentance that's going on. I'm so sorry for what my grandparents did. I'm not like them. I, I'm woke. I didn't do that kind of thing. So there's this cathartic feeling I'm repenting, and yet nothing is repented of. And the person who's doing the repenting never looks in their own heart and realizes they're as wicked as every one of their ancestors. It's a false religion. We want the pleasures, but we don't want the death. We don't want to pay the price. Remember, Jesus said of his own life, unless a seed fall to the ground and die, it cannot bear fruit. The seed must die to bear fruit. Bearing fruit, bearing fruit requires that you deny yourself, as Jesus did. And it brings joy and pleasure. And Jesus, who for the glory set before him, scorned the cross, ignoring its shame. Jesus scorned death because he loved you and he sought to bring you to his father. He scorned death. He said, I'll die to bear fruit. Jesus is a greatly fruitful savior. And if you don't know him as your savior, if you don't find fruit coming from your life, you don't see good fruit. Please turn to him. Go to him and say, I want to be fruitful. I'm willing to die to have this great life that you've laid out before me and that you're now experiencing this life that's eternal. Put to end the pattern of death, you know. Put to end the pattern of, I want the fruit, but I don't want the challenges and the responsibilities that began with Adam and Eve. Embrace Jesus. Come to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and for the way it comes to us and challenges us. And I pray, Father, that we will be a fruitful church, that I may be a fruitful husband and father and pastor, 
that we will be fruitful as elders and mothers and sisters and daughters and sons, as children, as old people. Father, every season is a season for bearing fruit in your kingdom, and I pray that we may be fruitful and that everyone here will come to Jesus and know the fruit of eternal life that he gave by dying. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.